Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what we can factually support, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and biases will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and might be divisive. We try to lighten the mood and to avoid too much doom and gloom, but we still suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. on representation with a look at some of the ways that you can do representation wrong. And yeah, I know it sounds like a catch-22. You need to do this thing, but don't do it like that. And that's why this stuff is so sticky. But it is really important, and it's a game changer when we get it right. So we do, we do need to take a few minutes to talk about the negative sides of representation because there are some circumstances in which, you know, representation in those groups and in those categories is is not the best right yeah so quite what is over representation one of our one of our forms of negative representation so let's go back to the discussion about systemic racism a bit and the criminal justice system you will hear us talk a lot about the disproportionate representation of minorities in the justice system in those episodes the simple definition is just that by proportion of the population, there are more minorities in prison than whites. You can broaden that out a little bit. So overrepresentation is when there are more people represented in a group than would be indicated by their proportion of the overall population. That's the simple go-to definition there. Men are overrepresented in the police force. White people are overrepresented in Congress. Minorities are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Actually, in fact, if you just Google overrepresentation, uh, the majority of the initial returns are about things like overrepresentation of certain population groups in the criminal justice systems in both America and around the world, um, but also like Asians in higher education are overrepresented, or ethnic and cultural minorities in special education programs are overrepresented. At least on the surface, overrepresentation seems to be associated with a problem of some sort. And I can't, I couldn't find any results that ever identified overrepresentation as being desirable. Now, I suppose that makes sense to a degree. Like, you don't really mind overrepresentation if it's a positive overall thing. It wouldn't be studied necessarily right. as, a, as an issue, right? But, like, you'll hear things like, aren't Asians being overrepresented in higher education? Isn't that a good thing? Does that, that, does that not mean that Asians are, as a rule, smarter than other population groups? And it 
is the problem of looking at the statistical outcome and mm -hmm. not the causes, right? So sure, I suppose, yeah, it's a good thing that Asians are overrepresented in higher education, but that ignores that that overrepresentation is responsible for, you know, fomenting tons of stereotypes throughout the years about Asians. And so maybe that's not a great thing. Plus, there's the whole fact that it, you know, it puts pressure on members of those groups to live up to a preconceived notion of success that they might not actually agree with or, or, or be compelled to achieve. But they have that pressure there. And so that is a source of stress for them. So, so no, it's not really a good thing to be overrepresented, even for a seemingly positive trait. Uh, specifically when it comes to the Asians in education, that's a phenomenon known as the model minority. We've, we've mentioned it a couple of times. We don't have, again, a lot of time to discuss it, but it's basically sort of like an upside-down racism. You are a good minority, and therefore you are expected to behave and act and achieve in a certain way. And anything outside of that is a failure of you. <laughs> you're, you're not allowed to be, quote-unquote, normal. Right. You may also have heard another phrase that basically uses overrepresentation as proof of an idea rather than an indication of a problem. Uh, we've discussed this dog whistle on the show before, the idea that 13% of the population commits 52% or maybe approximately 50% of crime in the United States. Or you may have seen basically just 13 slash 52 as shorthand in the comments. The idea behind that is that African-Americans, who comprise roughly 13% of the population, are allegedly responsible for 52% of the crime committed in the United States. This statistic is then used to justify arguments about police brutality, or worse, the idea that black people are somehow inherently more violent than white people. Um, this is really the easiest way to cut to the core of the problem of overrepresentation. If you just look at the proportion of arrests to the proportion of the population, yeah, those numbers seem pretty damning. But people are drawing the wrong conclusions from the statistics, or at least they're approaching them wrong. If you see that there's a disproportionate amount of the popula population re represented anywhere, right, then there are only two explanations. Either some characteristic inherent in that population is responsible for that representation, or a characteristic of the system is responsible for the disproportionality. That's a big one. I'm going to say it again. Either some characteristic inherent in that population is responsible for that representation, or a characteristic of the system is responsible for the disproportionality. Some people use this statistic because they are, in fact, raging sheet-wearing cross-burning racists. But I assume... Some of them who quote it aren't. I can say from experience, some people who quote it aren't. I interact with those people in my everyday life. And they are simply stating that statistic as a simple reality without thinking through what that means. If you think that there is nothing wrong with our criminal justice system, but that blacks commit more crimes, you're saying that black folks are inherently criminal. There's something about being black that makes black folks commit more crimes, period point blank. That's what it means. And it's no wonder that some people are convinced that this is true. It's an idea that's been around forever. 
shoot, we found one book purporting to be discussing progressive criminal justice from 1911, discussing looking for the root causes of crime and how punishments need to be tailored to the criminal, with the following quote referencing uh, Romani people who are called gypsies in the book. It said, they are the living example of a whole race of criminals and have all the passions and all the vices of criminals. That's the beginning of the whole section about their supposed inherent criminality and other negative traits that really isn't worth reading unless you're into super racist stuff. But so apparently the idea of the cause of crime being just an accident of birth is, well, it's, it's racism as old as time. And the truth, as, as our listeners of the show already know, or at least have heard us talk about, is that it's, it's obviously not that. It is far from it. Our systems can disproportionately impact the number of people affecting them, and this in turn impacts our perceptions and forms unconscious biases, which then compounds the problem until the end effect becomes the justification. For example, I would, I would set up a group to fail by making laws that impact them disproportionately. This is either by design or by lack of forethought, right? It doesn't have to be on purpose. The group naturally violates those laws more frequently, again, because the law was designed in a way that that would happen, not by any characteristic of the group themselves, right? Nothing inherent in the group. It's just because the law impacts them differently. Therefore, I arrest more of that group. I see that more of that group are represented in my statistics. Therefore, I then go out and look at that group, expecting to see them break the law. And I find them breaking the law that disproportionately impacts them to begin with and arrest more of them. And because I am spending less time or resources looking at another group, and therefore I am catching fewer of that group breaking the law, the imbalance is exaggerated. Therefore, overrepresentation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, and that moves us and, directly into stereotypes. You were going to say something. I was just going to say, this is exactly why we see these problematic statistics in their own right saying that a, a small population group commits a majority of the crime. It's not necessarily true. A better way to interpret that statistic would be a small population group gets in trouble more often for committing a crime. Yeah. Exactly. And, and this kind of overrepresentation, this kind of all, all eyes on, moves us directly into stereotypes, right? You've heard it before, I'm sure. The quote, stereotypes exist for a reason. And it's usually like sort of trailed off at the end, like stereotypes exist for a reason. As though the speaker is implying that the stereotype is accurate, even if acknowledging it out loud would be socially problematic. And the whole kicker about the idea, though, is that they're probably right to a degree, to a degree. Stereotypes do exist for a reason. They're deliberately simplified ideas about socially significant things, individuals, groups, and even social relations that are formed as a subject thinks about their everyday world. But in order to form a stereotype, we have to overcome the simple reality that we 
as groups, ignore all the time. There are no real significant differences between us and the persons in the group being stereotyped, the others. In order for a stereotype to work in our head or our culture, we have to put up imaginary boundaries around a group and accept that everyone within that group behaves in accordance to these boundaries. That's why it's so surprising when we see a black country music singer walk on the stage because we culturally have accepted that white people like country music and black people like hip hop and rap. It's just an automatic process. Our stereotypes are driven by our perceptions and our experience in the world around us. And so if our only experiences are from a very narrow band of exposure, then our stereotypes are going to be equally narrow. Like all things data-driven, the broader the pool of information that we draw from, the more accurate the conclusion we draw will be. If we've only ever had negative experiences with a people group, the stereotypes that we form about that group will only reflect those negative experiences. Right. I'm going to hit you with another one that I guarantee you have heard in your life. A very, like, a very narrow stereotype that, or rather, the breaking of a stereotype that is surprising to people, that gives them that stutter, that makes them trip over the fact that they expect people within their stereotype to behave a certain way. And it trips them up when I, when it doesn't, right? I, I, I'm willing to bet my next paycheck you have heard this one before. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. But Robin, you don't sound black. <laughs> okay, you got me there. That was, that was a good surprise. Yeah, I told no. you. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But that's like a prime example. People say that because they're talking to somebody and probably over the phone. They don't have visual on them, right? Or worse, they do and they work with them, I'm sure. And... Like they they are trying to express what they think is a compliment, I guess. Right. And they're saying, "Well, you don't sound black." They expect black people to sound a certain way, and that is the stereotype that they have subconsciously formed in their own head. So I, I just like that hit me while you were talking. Is like that is the I am sure actually everybody listening to that has either heard that themselves or knows somebody that has heard that, or maybe has even said that to somebody, yep. not knowing the weight that that carries as, as a, I mean, a, truly a problematically, horribly racist thing to say. Right. And if you were out there and you have ever said something like that to me, you don't sound black, you're the whitest black person I've ever met. Um, a, please know that that was problematic. But two, please know that I don't hold that against you. And I appreciate that you're listening to this podcast in order to improve on your ability to compliment people um, without participation in stereotypes. I still love you. But please don't ever say that to anyone else. (laughs) I'm going to try using a different stereotype to talk about this as well. And and to, to highlight the problems of negative representation and stereotypes. We've kind of beat into the ground these ideas about racial and ethnic and cultural stereotypes being problematic. And and they are, I think, relatively easy to grasp once they've been pointed out to you. You know, obviously the post 9-11 mentality about Muslims being terrorists is harmful both to our Muslim friends and neighbors, but also to our culture and society as Muslims are treated as second-class citizens, right? We understand that that is harmful to both parties. 
we lose the benefit of an outside viewpoint or opinion or experience by saddling them with a negative stereotype. But let's talk about kind of a, a different stereotype, political stereotyping. And we have seen this, I am sure if you have turned on the news at all <laughs> in the past 20 years, you have heard political stereotyping. Either right now the, the QAnon BS is, is like the far alt-right's favorite stereotype that, you know, liberals eat babies and are pedophiles. cannibal pedophiles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about it. A, a different one. This phrase, the tolerant left. This one isn't obviously incendiary on its surface. It's not something that people hear and go, wow, that's what a stereotype. That's such a negative thing to say. In fact, it kind of sounds like it, it might be positive, right? Usually it's used, however, in a sentence such as like, so much for the tolerant left accompanied with an eye roll or, <laughs> or more likely an eye roll emoji <laughs> because this is really popular online. And it's kind of like, it's a stereotype that tries to weaponize the idea of the big tent Democratic Party against the left. And it's part of a backlash of being accused of being intolerant. It, it's a whole thing. But the basic idea is that the left espouses this viewpoint that they want to represent everyone, that they're not going to alienate a person or a group because of their gender identity or creed or religion or sexual orientation or inter-descriptor here, right? Inter-identity here. So this is on its face, like I said, a, a positive stereotype. But it gets used, it gets set up as a standard that, quote, the left will or has failed to live up to. So specifically, if someone on the ideological right says something that the left won't agree with, you know, on social media, on Twitter, for example, the fact that the left is not accepting of this idea means that they really aren't tolerant and therefore they're hypocrites, right? Um, it's, it's a complicated setup for a straw man argument to allow someone to make an easy gotcha point to make their part, their their side seem right and, and fair and just. You see it, like I said, usually online when someone on the left or representative of the left gets angry about someone, say, treating trans people poorly or saying poor, you know, bad things about trans uh, people, and then they get canceled by the left. The response to that will usually be like, I thought the left was supposed to be accepting. I thought they were tolerant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if they don't accept my free speech, my ideas, then are they really tolerant? And it's just, it's super problematic. It's kind of a pet peeve issue. Obviously, I'm talking about it on my own podcast for a reason. Because it's super intellectually dishonest on its face. Because, one, I don't think any representative of the left goes around crowing about just universal tolerance for everything, right? That's sort of a label that is saddled upon them to make them a target. The left is tolerant. Therefore, the left will tolerate all of these horrible things, right? Or if they don't tolerate me, the left is horrible. It's used as a punching bag, like, trigger. But my point is, bringing this back to stereotypes, that even so-called positive stereotypes are bad, or can be bad, can be harmful, right? Even though stereotypes are sometimes necessary and sometimes useful because they are this shorthand for how we operate in life. 
they allow us to move through our day-to-day without overthinking every little implication of certain aspects. So sometimes they can be helpful. Even though they might be helpful in, on, on occasion, these good stereotypes like Asians being smart or the left being tolerant are used to set up these unrealistic standards that can be used against the offending party to make them look bad. The stereotype isn't always that black people sound a certain way. It isn't always that you know, certain people groups eat stinky food or whatever, right? Any partial and uninformed stereotype is the result of a narrow experience with that group. And it is problematic. Yeah, we we can't really say enough about how important it is for us all to acknowledge how much of our perspectives are informed by stereotypes and then to actively work to discover realities outside of those stereotypes. The path forward for all of us is paved with common ground, but we won't ever find enough of it to keep going if we continue to relate to each other only on the basis of the stereotypes that we've learned, whether they're positive or negative. So how does representation work to combat stereotypes? That's actually pretty simple. Real, true, valuable representation works to break down stereotypes by showing us the variety of experience and perspective inherent within each and every group. Representation shows us that there are black country singers and metalheads. Representation shows us that there are video game enthusiasts and video game designers living with disabilities. Representation makes room for us to see that people who belong to a different bucket than us actually share some of the same characteristics as those in our own bucket. But the kicker is this, like, it only works if it's true representation. We can't just rely on shoving more folks that fit our stereotypes into situations we're already used to seeing them in. We can't just throw a token representative into the mix and expect them to break down the barriers that we've created with our stereotypes. It feels like we're beating the same drum over and over and over here when we say that every single person's experience is different. But that really is the key to all of this. And on that note, true representation. Let's talk about tokenism. Yeah. Because tokenism is a situation in which like a member of a distinctive category is treated differently from other people or treated as a full representative of the group they belong to. We have all her jokes about the composition of main characters on a TV show and how there's always the token black guy and the token Asian girl. And often they are used as stand-ins. They, they fully embody the media stereotype of their groups. They are false representation. They are literally the exact opposite of true representation. And we are used to seeing this kind of representation in the media. Yeah, but tokenism is much more than that joke. And it goes much further than the characters on your favorite Disney Channel show, right? It's present in every area where representation matters. And it can actually function as a handicap for those people who find themselves in that situation, who are operating as the token. Often there's an expectation that a tokenized person is able to fully represent and communicate about the whole of the experience of the group that they're representing. Um, I, I have been in that circumstance. I've been in a room full of white people with one other person with brown skin and asked to speak for 
how black people might feel about a situation, right? And it, it completely disregards the fact that no member of one group or another fully understands the experience of that group. It places a burden of knowledge on that individual and increases the pressure, actually, of being and only in an already potentially uncomfortable situation. Yes, my skin is brown and my hair is really, really curly, but I was raised by a white mother in a Swedish family in suburban Minnesota. I can tell you more about ice hockey than I can about black history in America. And that's not something that I'm proud of. It's something that I'm working to try to fix. But it illustrates why I'm not a great token. I do not stand in for black America in any given situation. I stand in for my experience. I stand in for who I am and how I have experienced my own blackness in my life, but I can't speak for anybody else. Another definition of tokenism, which is pulled from People of Color in Tech, um, which is an organization that that furthers people of color a, working in Is it about people of color in and tech, in tech industries? Yeah. Yeah, this definition I, <laughs> this definition calls it the practice of making only a perfunctory or a symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by, by recruiting a small number of people from an underrepresented group in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce. And this definitely directly relates to that legislation that we were talking about earlier in California that requires companies to have certain numbers of underrepresented groups on their boards of directors. That kind of legislation, in my personal opinion, puts these organizations in direct danger of exactly this particular kind of tokenism. Having one or two members of an underrepresented group in your midst kind of creates a false sense of representation. It makes you feel like you really are doing your part to further diversity in your organization, but instead it actually asks those people to be proxies for the perspectives and the experiences of all the others in their group and to advocate for positions that they may not fully understand. So that's why proportional representation or even just the aspiration towards proportional representation is so important. And that's why tokenism, that's why having a black person on the board by having an LGBTQ teacher in your school isn't going to cut it moving forward. It's interesting as you were as we we're discussing this, I kind of realized that and and tell me what you think of this idea. Candace Owens is kind of serving as the token right now on the right. She she's, yes. She's she's being used to speak for the entire black population in America, or at least trying to, 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 to communicate, you know, on their behalf. Yeah. Candace Owens is definitely an example of that kind of tokenism. And there are a few others, especially associated with Prager University, which is one of the organizations in this world that makes me feel the most uncomfortable. Um, I just have like a gut reaction to the, the marketing communications that they put out. But, um, yeah, she, she definitely is functioning in that token capacity in that the organizations that work with her are treating her as representative of the black population and almost using her to assuage their, um, I don't want to say guilt because I don't think they feel guilt, but to reinforce their perspective. To, 
Yeah, to justify what they're saying. Right, to prop up the fact that, yeah, see, yeah. a black person agrees with us. Yeah. Forgetting that she is That's a black person with a very specific experience and also that she is a black person with a very specific experience that traded in that experience for a completely different experience. Right? She, we all have a completely different perspective on life. Candace Owens was um, a hardcore activist for civil rights and, and for black rights in America. And then she had a, an encounter that was unpleasant to her and went dark for quite a while. And then when she reemerged as a public figure, she reemerged on the conservative right. And that's, that's why you can't just pick a person to justify your perspective. You can't just pick a token to agree with you going forward. Right. She can be a voice, but using her as the voice is the problem. Yeah. Like I've said it to so many people in the last eight months. Blackness is not a monolith. My experience of being black is not the same as Candace Owens' experience of being black. It's not the same as Reverend Jesse Jackson's experience of being black or John Lewis's experience of being black or what right. was Ella Fitzgerald's experience of being black. They're, they're all so very different because we have all experienced different things and you can't just treat it as, as blackness. Right. Being black doesn't mean that our lives are sorry your lives are man i was right there with you you had you sucked me in man being black does not mean that your lives were automatically the same just like being white doesn't mean that my life is like you know jfk's life was right. or like uh rudy giuliani's life is right yeah and i feel like there's like a general th acceptance that there is significant diversity in whiteness but there is no, mm -hmm. almost no perception of diversity in the experiences of people of color from a cultural perspective. Oh, yeah. No, that I, I see. Yeah, I think you're right on there. There's this sort of acceptance that black people are black people and white people are Irish or Swedish or American or Canadian. Right. Or, you know, until it comes to things like black pride and white pride and then people are like well why can't we have white pride it's like oh now all of a sudden you want to be one group right okay right right up until yesterday you were scottish <laughs> so don't that's fair don't yeah get out of here another definition of tokenism pulled from people of color in tech which is an organization that promotes people of color and well in the tech industry is shocker the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce. And this definition directly relates to that legislation that we talked about earlier in California that's requiring companies to have certain numbers of underrepresented groups on their boards of directors. That kind of legislation, in my opinion, puts these organizations in direct danger of exactly this kind of tokenism. Having one or two members of an underrepresented group in your midst creates kind of a false sense of representation. It asks those people to be proxies for the perspectives and the experience of all of the other people in their group and to advocate for positions that they may not even fully understand. 
What this legislation is doing, essentially, is creating a situation in which companies that wouldn't normally welcome perspectives from underrepresented people are forced to recruit these folks, but not in any way incentivized to incorporate their feedback or their perspective. And then you have tokenized representatives that may very well find themselves in a situation where their perspectives are not valued, or they're expected to speak for an entire group of people, and it's just not a situation where meaningful progress is likely to be made. Meaningful progress, again, in my opinion, comes when an organization reflects the people that it's designed to serve. And that's why I think that in many areas, proportional representation, or even just the aspiration towards it, is so important. Yeah, that legislation bothered me when we talked about it, and it's just... It seems like it's so obviously going to, like, it's well-intended and poorly executed planning. Yeah. It's, it's not really going to make anything better because we're going to hire, you know, X minority group population representative here. And then, like, if they weren't already being sought out as part of our board, chances are when they speak up to offer something, it will very much be like a... Thank you for your input there, buddy. Go back to drinking your coffee while the adults work. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You know, that's like... uh, You can't... You can't force other people to value somebody else's perspective. Exactly. The the focus needs to be not on forcing interaction, I think, between different cultures or different groups or whatever, but fostering a like an environment of, of of wanting to approach people outside of your own experience for input, mm-hmm. right? Like if you, you, it's more about like educating the people that you work with or that, that work with you or that are in your company about the importance of having people challenge your ideas and having cultures uh, have input on these things and, and having minority groups you know, have a voice at the conversation, not because, you know, they haven't had representation for so long or this is what the law requires, but because having them there is going to make our product or our service better. Right. We will be better able to serve our community um, or our, our target group or anybody, you know. It's kind of going back to what we were talking about with affirmative action and how it kind of has this perspective of forcing employers or universities or the people who you know practice affirmative action in some form, it, it like forces them to fill slots with minority groups. Right. When it's more about recognizing how important it is to, to have those there, like how it is so much better to have them because of their experience, not despite their experience. Right. Yeah. Like we, I've had these conversations a couple of times, especially concerning vice president elect Harris. Like why, why was it okay for Joe Biden to choose her because she was a black woman? And kind of what I got to the core of it is that yes, she is incredibly highly qualified. She has all the qualifications of any other candidate. Um, But she may not be the most objectively qualified in your perspective. However, there there is a space where 
a person's lived experience, their the identity that they're representing, those experiences are their own kinds of qualifications. What they bring right. to the table with those things, with those experiences, is a different level of qualification. Yeah. And so I think it's frequently called an, an intangible, an yeah. intangible trait. Um and I think you're you're exactly right. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it, it it's not that she isn't capable of doing the job. It's that she is fully capable of doing the job. She has the qualifications. And then we recognize how valuable it is to have her perspective as well. Right. And so that perspective is what is wherever she might be lacking on her on paper, right? On the resume, the value of her perspective is putting her over the finish line for the purposes of the Biden administration at this point. Right. So it's not solely because she is black. It is because she has all of these qualifications and she is black. Plus also, it's a plus and. And, 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 sorry, I don't mean to, to diminish this role because I think we're conditioned to think of people in American terms, but also like Southeast Asian, right? So she represents both of those groups. Yes. (laughs) So. Yes. Yeah, don't want to diminish that. No, not at all. Actually, there's there's like this whole thing going on right now with um, entire groups of people thinking that the fact that she is Southeast Asian, that, that her, her mother does come from India, is overplayed. Um, and like there's this whole group of people who are kind of like harping on, on her post and on her sister's post just to kind of like remind them that you are also black. It's like this weird flex um, and I, please, please know that I do not think that it is members of the black community that are harping on this, right? I'm pretty confident that it is not uh, members of the black community that are out there trying to remind the Harris sisters that they are also black. Yeah, yeah it's just this weird, it's this weird you situation. You can't win for losing for some right. people, you know? It's just, you're no matter what, you're going... I saw I saw somebody that was like celebrating the fact that Musk's the the uh, serial number eight rocket that they launched SN eight uh, crash landed, <laughs> and it's the same sort of like mentality like it crash landed and they were they were happy about it, and it's like why what? why are you so happy about it like right? And, I don't know. Some people just have to they they can't they can't be excited about progress that they don't agree with on a personal level right they just can't so they they go out and they seek to tear things down it's people are very fast i've discovered especially since we started this podcast and been advertising and trying to get people to come in they're very people are very fast to voice their negative opinions and very slow to voice their positive it's true it's true and i i should have given you fair warning about that Going into yeah, this, how, cool. how quickly I, it was going to pull uh, the trolls out from under the bridges, but seriously, we've like on the because uh, we've put out you know two or three ads that have been like actual experiments to get audience members in, and if you were here because of those, please let us know. That would be great uh, and welcome. <laughs> but like you know, I think we've had four comments on them, and two and a half of them are troll comments. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's just like, ouch. I mean, come on. Where are you? Ow, guys. Not really. I don't give it. I'm not allowed to say that on this podcast because we're trying to be family friendly. But, if um, it makes you feel better, uh, I work um, with a uh, company that makes 
infant nutrition products. And yeah. like the first comments on a, an ad for baby formula are troll comments, right? So like it's just across the board. That's the nature it's of social so media advertising. Gosh, but I should have definitely It's so weird you. to me. Come on, guys. Go watch some Bambi. Why don't you really internalize some of the lessons there and come back? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's a that's aging me. That's for sure. So it, that kind of leads into some of the other problems. Actually, but believe it or not, uh, <laughs> this conversation about tokenism and filling quotas is that the results of trying to bring representation into our various spaces aren't necessarily always good. We've talked a lot about the positives of, of diverse viewpoints through the various episodes that we've had. We would be remiss to say that every change would be positive. That's just, a, that's not true about anything. There's, there's always pros and cons to something. So a lot of, I'm going to summarize most of what I found speaking specifically about proportional representation, because that was the last thing you mentioned about being important is that it has challenges that are inherent to having various viewpoints. We talked about it, how like in policing, having somebody from one culture policing or patrolling in an area that is culturally different or diverse from the, the ones they're familiar with can lead to tension. But that happens in the boardroom. That happens in the, you know, the halls of Congress that happens in our classrooms. When you have a multitude of voices from, from these wildly different backgrounds, reaching consensus about the way to move forward or the next step or, you know, whatever you need to reach consensus on, uh, it can be problematic. And that is, it's easiest to, to illustrate when it comes to government. Because I can, like, the two examples I'm going to give you are very easy to be like, okay, that is a problem of having too many voices. And one of them is like, Italy has a proportional representation system in their government. It's like baked in. And it has led to their parliament being forced to dissolve eight times since the <laughs> 1970s, which is, you know, not great. That's and a it's lot. just because. That's a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> well, but like, because it reaches gridlock and it can't reach an agreement and it can't do something. And another example is like Belgium in 2010, after that election, it took them 18 months to form a coalition government. And uh, I, naturally, <laughs> a government that's arguing internally about how it's going to run and who's going to represent what and who's going to do what and who's going to be on the team isn't actually doing its job. So that's not great. Pretty right. effective. Israel is looking like they're going to dissolve and hold yet another election because they can't form a coalition or the coalition is ineffective. It's just like, if you cannot, the natural, I think, counterpoint, or not counterpoint, sorry, that's not right. If you're going to have proportional representation, you must have the ability to be flexible in, in how you interact with each other. You can't have proportional representation and rigid viewpoints on how things must be because right. then stuff doesn't happen. Yeah. And that's just a culture shift. It's just a culture shift. And I think that's solved by having representation. It kind of sounds silly, but the more, pe the more people are forced to work with people outside of their own cultures, 
and 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 have these more broad inclusive interactions the easier it will be for people from different cultures to interact <laughs> it's just yeah. the, the more experience you have doing something the easier doing that thing becomes and i think that the easier it becomes for us to see each other as more than representatives of that other right like it right. becomes easier for us to interact uh, as teachers talking to teachers or um, accountants talking to accountants or politicians talking to politicians rather than a white right. person talking to a black person yeah. or an LGBTQ person talking to a straight or cisgendered person. Yeah. Like once we get to know each other and experience each other beyond those identities, those representative yeah. groups. Yeah, right. Beyond the stereotypes then we can start discussing the ways in which those identities inform the purpose for which we're having the discussion. How can uh, someone's perspective as a disabled teacher inform the perspective on education as a whole, perhaps in that school, versus just interacting as our, our representative groups? Right. Actually, it's one of the reasons I'm actually super excited that one of our representatives in Congress is Tammy Duckworth, who is a, a, a double amputee, and yeah. uh, Dan Crenshaw, who is missing an eye from uh, his combat experience, or he was blinded. I actually don't know if he's missing it or if he's just blinded, but I have a feeling with the whole pirate thing going on, it's probably so. Hey, if you listen, Dan, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm happy be, to have you on. But, you know, having these representatives, and those, those are two people with very different worldviews from different sides of the aisle, but having them there with their lived experience is great. Because when right. it comes to veterans affairs, I want those two people involved in that. When it comes to determining whether or not we are going to go to war or have military action with yet another country, I want those people there because they have seen combat they have seen war and they have not just seen some of the horrific effects they have lived the horrific effects and those people are going to be right. much more sober in their judgment when it comes to sending more people into that meat grinder that's just one very very small example of all the reasons representation is so stinking important because it's one thing for you and i to sit here and be like yeah getting your legs blown off is bad and it's another to have your legs blown off and then be trying to decide whether or not you're going to send more people in to do that. Right. Right. That is, I mean, that's a lived experience that an incredibly small portion of the population can even say that they have. And then, well, there's, there's two, there are two, two disabled <laughs> former veterans in our United States Congress. So that's a heavy weight to carry. And that's, that's why it's really important for them to be able to represent that perspective. Yeah when it comes to making laws and decisions. So just to kind of put a bow on the whole, these last three sessions that we've had here, wrap this up and, and do a shameless plug. Representation, uh, I think what we've really gotten to here and the, the understanding that I've reached is that representation is important when it is driven by a desire to to expand your understanding and not by a desire to look 
good. And that yeah. seems like a very big, very like oversimplified way of doing it. But if the if the impetus for the representation is internal, right? Oh shoot! Other people with other experiences will make me a more whole. Will make our company more whole. Will make our government more, more representative. That's great. Versus, we need a woman in Congress because she's woman. You know, because she <laughs> because she is woman. Which is what I think a lot of people think of when they hear representation. They hear, right. we want a black person because they are black. We want a woman because she is a woman. Which is why we got that comment that was like, you know, quotas are stupid. Which I think we, <laughs> we kind of agree with, actually. Quotas, yeah. for quotas' sake, are stupid. It just... They're stupid. It's going to lead to problems. <laughs> so Fairly harmful, actually, to success metrics in the workplace. But we talk about that, actually. Yeah, in our affirmative action episode. And, and well, I mean, and going back to that episode, not to just keep spinning this one on, but Emerson was saying... When I had that conversation with him, he's like, it kind of made me feel like I was just there, not because of my qualifications, but because of my race, because of my ethnicity, right. which I'm paraphrasing what he said a great deal. But, you know, it, it, it robs our minority groups from of that, sorry, of that feeling of accomplishment that comes knowing that you put in your work if, if. A quota is just there for a quota's sake. Yeah. It robs them of that, that feeling of plus and. Yeah, exactly. You are valuable. You are worthy. Plus and you have this experience. Yeah, that value added. Uh, yeah. That's a much more succinct way of putting it than I did. <laughs> Which is why you're here, Robin. <laughs> so. that, is, that is my superpower. Yeah. Uh, I can make many, things much more succinct. Many, many superpowers in this podcast would probably be a flaming pile of all sorts of terrible things if you weren't here so so if you're listening to this and you want to let us know that you think this is a flaming pile of all sorts of terrible (laughs) things how would they do that robin let me just tell you how to let us know that this is a flaming pile uh (laughs) the first way that you could do that would be by leaving us a review you know if you're favorite podcast listening platform allows you to leave us a review please consider doing just that Uh, your review will help others discover our podcast um, and actually let the platforms know that there's valuable content to be found here so that they can recommend it to other folks just like you Um, you can do that very conveniently by visiting our link tree which is available on our social media accounts facebook and instagram bet you can guess what we're called fireside breakdowns easy to find us facebook and Instagram. Yep. And uh, if for some reason your platform does not allow you to leave a review, I know Spotify does not, you could, in fact, leave that review on our Facebook page. It would also serve the purpose of letting the content platforms know that you find something valuable here and also sharing with your fellow listeners or potential listeners the things that you love or would like to see changed about our podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, we would love to see you follow us, actually, on those social media accounts. Yes. Um, Again, Fireside Breakdowns on both Facebook and Instagram. There you will find links to our episodes, to supplemental resources, to things that we just find interesting. Um, There's probably going to be a lot of Venn diagrams. Why? Because Venn diagrams are awesome. 
Uh, you'll find some pie charts. You'll we probably like find some photos from the Library of Congress because they do this really cool thing where they have a whole set of photos every month that you can just use for free. So we'll probably capitalize on that. Yeah. It'll be cool stuff. Free stuff. It'll be super cool stuff. So you should follow us. And then finally, if none of those ways of reaching out to us appeal to you and you would like to send us a good old-fashioned email, you can do that. We are Fireside Breakdowns gmail.com we would love to hear from you in long form maybe you have a letter or an essay you'd like to write to us we would love to hear from you because why we make this podcast for you plus also us but mostly for you you. like a lot so we would love to hear from you absolutely it was funny you were saying you know you can reach us on facebook at fireside breakdowns or instagram at fireside breakdowns or gmail at fireside breakdowns and it's like I almost said we like to keep things simple around here, and then I realized what our show is, and the irony was too much for me to actually get the words out of my mouth. <laughs> so, they just got stuck. Yeah, they're like, no, 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 no. Not even, not even you, sir. <laughs> that is not a joke you but get to make, you sir. You cannot. So um, I'm going to give us some, some good news. And, Tell me some uh, good news. To take us into the, uh, the Christmas week, if you celebrate. Uh, so, good news. The Biden administration is on track to be the most LGBTQ inclusive in history. The Biden-Harris transition team has promoted the president-elect's commitment to building an administration that looks like America. And that includes representatives of many parts of the LGBTQ community. And special bonus, that also includes many people of color who are a part of those communities because we love intersectionality. Yes. But the important part here, and we can't stress this enough, is that they're not being included solely as representatives for these identities. We will see these members of the administration serve in roles that are in no way directly related to their gender or their sexual orientation or anything to do with their association with the LGBTQ community, right? They are, what is it, plus and, right? Plus and, yes. Plus and. Their skills and experience are valuable in their chosen careers. Plus and. They bring these other outside perspectives into their roles. And again, I can't think of a reason that would be bad. I can't. I can't either. Now, on the other hand, uh, we've talked about the, the Biden administration a couple of times already. And we would... Again, be it would be an oversight to not mention that there are still some problems with the administration that's being built. And I just that's wanted true. to bring that up because, uh, you know, I have been following this and we are aware that uh, the uh, Latinx population in the United States and the Asian American population uh, have some concerns with the amount of representation that they're seeing from their uh, minority groups in the Biden administration. And the administration is still being built, so there's a lot of a lot of room there. Right. Um, they were, I think, a, a couple of the articles that I was reading mentioned that it was specifically not just that there was little representation from their groups, but even less of that representation in positions of quote unquote importance. So the the higher right, level cabinet positions. Yeah. So that that's something that I'm keeping an eye on. I think. <laughs> Because, oh, 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 happy six-month 
uh, month anniversary. This is our our year. Oh, We've been doing this for six months, and we're half a year old. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, because we're six months in, and, and we this this podcast is solely operated under the Trump uh, presidency. We have yeah ragged on the Trump presidency pretty hard a couple of times, and again, yeah. we are not. We are personally left of center. Uh, we are publicly on our podcast. We try to be more balanced in the middle. And so I am, I just, this is all, this is a criticism that I have of the Biden administration already is that a lot of the people that they are bringing in are people that have already had a bite at the apple <laughs> under the Obama right. administration. Not a lot changed. We're seeing, you know, not as much representation from some certain groups that we'd like. There's room for improvement here. So uh, never let it be said that we don't have anything negative to say about people yeah. on the left side of the aisle. It is. Yeah, I'll it, definitely. Yeah, there's plenty. It'll to be see. interesting to see how this shakes out. And if, I mean, if, dear listener, if you remember from our um, episode on presidential transitions, there are something like 2,000 different positions that need to be appointed um, as this administration takes office. And so hopefully Four, 4, 000, um, 4, some of those. Oh, it's 4,000. Yeah. Jeez. My late night brain is killing yeah. me. Yeah. So 4,000, which there's a whole host of opportunity there. And I really do hope that they take that opportunity to bring in people who have those valuable perspectives. And it some of it may not be as high profile, but just because it's not high profile doesn't mean that it's not highly impactful. Yeah, so exactly. So take that with you into the new year. We will probably see you one more time. One more time before twenty twenty one. Yes, so we'll have one more episode on the twenty eighth that we will have to somehow shoehorn in a recording uh, for <laughs> between now and then. <laughs> oh Lord Jesus! Yeah. Um, just for uh, reader awareness, reader awareness, listener awareness, excuse me, we have a short list of uh, listener suggested topics that I think we're going to try to knock out here yeah. over the course of the next couple of months, just because uh, some of them are incredibly timely as one would expect. And we, you know, we want to uphold our promise to address those questions. Uh, we just had this series on uh, representation lined up. Uh, already for this month so promise you guys we are going to roll into those listener requests probably here in the next month and a month or two depending yeah. on how it all shakes out and uh just get right on rolling on those so until yeah. then robin any last words that sounds really bad any final words for the podcast robin? <laughs> final thoughts final thoughts six months we're tanking it yeah uh Can you tell it's almost midnight it's after midnight <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, um, we should not record late at night, that's what we should not do. So no, I don't have any last words. All right, on that note then, everybody uh, be safe, wear your masks, and uh, take care of each other. (laughs) 